The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. In order to get a fair shot at the opportunities available, learners need resources and services that will help them tackle the barriers that have dogged them in the past and prevented them from acquiring the skills they need to get a job and keep a job that pays well. Wraparound supports are crucial in promoting persistence and completion of education and training programs. These supports include counselling, mental health services, financial advice, and even financial assistance for housing costs and transportation. Sometimes barriers to work are smaller than one would imagine. A participant, for example, might need new truck tires, steel-toed boots, or a set of knives for culinary school. That's an excerpt from Long Life Learning, preparing for jobs that don't exist yet. Welcome to the Inside Learning Podcast brought to you by the Learnervate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. I'm your host, Aidan McCullen, and I'm delighted to say we're joined by the author of that book from which I took an excerpt, Michelle Weiss. Welcome to Inside Learning. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's so good to have you on the show, Michelle. I shared that opening quote because there's a whole world of people who are so less privileged than many of us, and we are totally oblivious to that. But you share examples of how that could change. I thought that would be a great way to kick off today's show. It is really sort of the the main thrust of my book. I have been kind of immersed in this field of the future of work and the future of education. And what I was noticing from a lot of the analysts and Uh, the different kinds of pundits out there is that we were so focused on the things and the jobs and the it of the problem, the number of people who would lose their jobs to automation or computerization or AI. And so my intent in writing this different approach to thinking about the future of education and the future of work was to really turn the conversation from the future of work to the future of workers and the people and really get centered on the lives of the people who are not thriving today. And it's this concept that many people know of as curb cut effects, where, you know, if you just take the the concept of uh, in the U.S. uh, where I'm based, when uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act came to be, uh, this idea of cutting into the curb and creating sloping ramps on our sidewalks was initially designed for those who were handicapped or in wheelchairs or couldn't uh, couldn't move as easily. But what what we were able to do with this kind of universal design and more accessible design was actually uh, benefit so many other people. Right? It it benefits all of us when we're on a bicycle or a skateboard or with a dolly of um, boxes to deliver or uh, with luggage. And it, and it really kind of opens up the space for everyone. And I think if we actually think about this in the context of work and workers, what we do is we think about what are all the different kinds of obstacles and barriers that those who are not thriving in the labor market today are facing. And if we can solve for those, and if we can build solutions around those pain points, we will actually create these curb cut effects that will affect all of us as working learners. And this is something that we all need to contend with when it comes to this uncertain world of work ahead. All of us are going to have to become 
working learners who are going to have to continuously access education throughout our work lives in order to remain competitive and remain relevant. And so in order to do this well, again, like selfishly, we're all going to need to rely on the same system. So how do we design it for those who are struggling the most today? It made me think of the the wealth gap. We, we often talk about the wealth gap and the wealthy pulling away, like the Peloton and the Tour de France or whatever it might be. But I, it made me think that it's the same with the education gap, that those who are educated, as I said, are often oblivious to those who aren't and the, the real challenges that they have, the real struggles they have. And education is so intertwined with change and innovation. It's, it's the root or you change how people see the world and their world changes. And I thought about that as one of the key trusts to your work is to shine a light on the real challenges that people have, because we often think of people maybe without empathy and go, oh, why don't they just take a course, et cetera. But it's not that simple. Exactly. The idea is around the myth of a meritocracy, right? And I use kind of the language from Abraham Lincoln, who talks about the race of life. And when you actually just sort of look at the circumstances of access to good education, and and we know, for instance, the benefits of post-secondary education in terms of earnings premiums over a lifetime. But if if we have moments all along the way from pre-K all the way through post-secondary that make that race of life feel rigged or or are rigged then we're in trouble right that 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 sort of idea of the peloton kind of pulling away it's inevitable where we are not setting up for that kind of just uh environment and so I, you know obviously i'm kind of looking at it more from uh the adult learner perspective so you know there are also really incredible you know interventions that need to occur much much early on even in sort of our infancy from 0 to 3 months to set up the ability to to be curious learners and people um but because i'm sort of in this space that kind of hovers between post secondary and the workforce i'm trying to figure out what do we do with what we've got today in terms of people who have not had that access to uh, to that a high quality education that can really lead directly to labor market outcomes. What do we do now? I'm thinking now that there's many thought bubbles out there of our listeners going on. What is it about zero to three? So I have to ask you about that because right back to the root, I often think about that, the story of if you were to walk into your kitchen and it, the sink was overflowing, what do you do? Do you grab a mop or do you turn off the tap? And here you're talking about actually intervening at a much, much younger age. I'd love you to share a little bit about that zero to three element because I'm sure it's piqued many people's interest. Yeah, I actually um, used to work for a former employer. Um, it was the Venture Philanthropy Group of Piero Midiar, who was the founder of eBay. He created uh, Imaginable Futures, which is actually kind of doing this sort of two-pronged effort of thinking about intergenerational mobility and um, how we think about uh, learners who are parents at the same time or have parenting responsibilities and the children and the kinds of interventions that need to occur, especially in those ages between zero and six, and that these things need to happen simultaneously, that, that you know, it's this question of what do we do when we're faced with this massive challenge? Where do we intervene? We kind of have to go at it from, from both angles. The zero to three months um, idea is actually something that comes out of the literature on trauma 
Um, and it's, it's this idea that, um, for, for many of us, uh, um, we can't actually, uh, we, there, there's a sort of there, we need access to stability in our family lives, in our environments, uh, when we are children, uh, to give us the stability in order to actually be adventurous and curious in our learners. But if, if young people do not have access to uh, that kind of stable environment and they're facing a lot of trauma, even as early on as an infant, it basically sets you up to not be able to engage beyond what makes you feel safe. And so we can't actually ask some of our underestimated populations to make that leap to be uh, as curious when uh, when they haven't been able to feel safe in the environments that they are in. I've read this before that the brain of a child who has a traumatic upbringing is actually smaller than another child's brain who might have had a, a more privileged upbringing because they don't, they're not in fight or flight. And when you're in fight or flight, you can't be thriving and growing. So the brain is a lens through which you see the world. So your lens is going to be very different and you're not going to be able to learn as much. Your capacity for learning isn't as big, but let's move on because there's so much here I want to get through and ask you because you make the case that learners of the future are going to repeatedly seek out educational opportunities throughout the course of their working lives, which will no longer have a beginning, middle and end. That's really important because you mentioned about the the sidewalks and the ramps to get on because you talk a lot about this idea of on and off ramps. Yeah, I've I've sort of been obsessed with this concept of lifelong learning, which is obviously not a new concept. We've all we've all, you know, had this in the ether for a while, for decades, but I've been fascinated by it because I haven't seen a lot of action around it. We I think we all conceptually believe in the idea that we all need to be lifelong learners, that we can't teach our students just um, a subject, but we have to sort of teach them how to fish so that if the subject or the material that they were more familiar with uh, becomes obsolete, that they know how to fish for themselves and, and gain new knowledge and learn how to apply that new knowledge in a new, in a new context. But when you actually look at our systems and the architecture of K through 12 education or post-secondary education, the way that workforce training works, we're not set up to facilitate uh, that kind of flexible, seamless, um, you know, bite-sized pieces of learning whenever we need it on demand. We we don't actually have access to, to lifelong learning. I think the tacit assumption is that, well, if somehow you know your job is at risk, you better go skill up and maybe go back to school. But for so many folks, that's just a bridge too far in terms of what is within the realm of possibility for them. If they have you know children to take care of or elderly parents to take care of, there's too much kind of going on in order to sort of just naturally return to college. And and it's unclear whether many of our colleges and universities actually provide the skill sets that are coming out of these sort of emerging um, job descriptions from the labor market, right? There's a mismatch there. So what do we do? And so how do we begin actually laying the foundation today for a future that may be five, 10 years out, 20 years out, but how do we make it so that we actually build those on and off ramps so that we make it easier on ourselves? That is really... um, that's really sort of the focus of the book. And it 
and not just to kind of point out what we don't have, but to point out the different sorts of seeds of innovation that we see on the horizon that are really promising, uh, maybe not yet scalable yet, or maybe not yet touching all the populations we're seeking to touch, but really promising signs that we need to do more of these different kinds of activities of helping people surface their competencies and skill sets that they didn't even know they had or mapping out pathways for them or giving them access to social capital building um, uh, groups that can help them understand, you know, how to, how to build networks and leverage professional networks, um, different sorts of things like that. So it's really meant to isolate the challenges, but then show a vast array of solutions out there that are, that are really promising. You mentioned their social capital. And I think this one was something I had totally overlooked and you emphasize the importance of it. You say here, building and diversifying access to social capital has become a cornerstone of many newer educational programs. And you go on to say, in the learning ecosystem of the future, one you envisage, there will need to be more ways for people to forge stronger social ties and build more connected communities. I'd love if it expand on that, because for me, that was something I totally didn't see from my perspective. Yeah. One of the fascinating um, sort of pieces of information that kind of keep coming out from different survey data is that when we are in a moment of transition and thinking about switching jobs, who do we go to? Where do we go? We don't actually seek advice from, you know, faculty or experts in post-secondary as a as as just sort of a person living in the world. We go to our social networks, our family and friends. And a lot of the the research around social capital is is centered on this idea that people who grow up, for instance, with parents who've who never went to college or are not exposed to a larger network of, of people who are really, you know, doing well in, in, in the job market, um, can't necessarily pass on great, uh, contacts and networks for, for their children. And if children are growing up in this space where they don't know how to leverage, uh, a family friend in order to get that first job or that first internship, it really does prove to, to be a disadvantage in, in future uh, work interactions. And there was this kind of fascinating data as you look at some of the groups like Co-op and Climb Hire and uh, Project Basta that really do think about networks and social capital where, you know, I think it was in uh, some human resources management data that showed that you were nine times more likely to get a job through a referral. And if that's the case, that is really dependent on what kind of network do you have and what kind of ties do you have? Because even when we think about the difference between weak ties and strong ties, like someone you really know well in the field versus someone maybe you just met, a lot of this, this research has shown that even those weak ties can be really productive in terms of helping someone bridge to a new role. And so how do we think about this idea of bridging these different sorts of ties that exist in the world? And most of our learners don't necessarily understand that in order to find your next job, it is really going to largely depend on who you talk to and who you know. Um, and that piece is something we need to, again, adjust for, for people who maybe don't have um, 
access to wealth and those professional networks through their families, but have to build it on their own. I want to bring it back to something that I was laughing with you when we spoke before, which was the title of the book. And you mentioned you were always fascinated with lifelong learning. And I noticed this. I don't know. Did you ever watch the show Friends? Yeah. Did you ever watch? Yeah. So there's an episode of Friends. And for those who may be younger audience members who didn't or didn't watch it ever, Joey was this character and he was a wannabe actor. He was always a, a struggling actor. And he, he goes for one of his many auditions and he had a simple line to say, mmm, soup. And he kept saying, mmm, noodle soup, right? So he kept going, mmm, noodle soup, right? And, and I had that with your book because the title is Long Life Learning, not Lifelong Learning. And I had to keep re repeating it over and over to get it right so I wouldn't make the mistakes. But I wanted to say that to emphasize the title because the title is really clever. And you offer us a glimpse in the book into a near future where careers will last 100 years. And that feels like miles away to people. But we're seeing this shift gradually. We're living longer. Our careers are lasting longer. Even, for example, the pension funds are getting smaller because people are living longer. So there's nobody feeding the other end of the funnel. So there's all these changes that are happening. They're sneaking up on us. And many of us are oblivious to that. So I'd love if you share about the long life learning version of that. Yeah. I mean, luckily there are some preeminent authors who wrote the hundred year life uh, to kind of articulate this just longer lifespan idea. But yeah, I, I've found the idea of a longer lifespan in general, just to be a really helpful mental model, because like many of um, you know the listeners here, I'm sure when we hear all these different statistics about obsolescence, job obsolescence, and massive automation and artificial intelligence, it can all start to feel paralyzing. And I was just noticing this effect, even as I was writing early drafts of my book, it was starting to sound like fear mongering, you know, when, when you really start getting into the nitty gritty and the you know, the black boxes of AI, it starts to feel overwhelming and like there's nothing, nothing we can possibly do to, to counteract uh, what's, what's on the horizon. And meanwhile, you know, I was introduced early to some of these concepts around a longer lifespan where there were different kinds of futurists and experts on aging and longevity who were who were prognosticating that, you know, maybe the first people to live to be 150 years old had already been born. And granted, it's it is really hard for us to extrapolate and think about that that sort of future as, oh my goodness, you know, there are people that may be around us who may live that long. But when you actually start to just pull back, even just slightly, to think about what is going on today, you realize how much longer people are staying in the workforce. They're they're staying well into their 60s and 70s, far longer than they had ever anticipated. And as you mentioned, the pensions and the social security and the kinds of um, funding we thought we could depend on are just, they're not going to be there. And so it's actually not that hard for us to imagine even our work lives extending 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and even when you make that just small adjustment, you realize how deeply inadequate even an excellent college degree is. You realize with this fast evolving economy that we are 
we are living in with, with all these new technologies that are really changing the nature of work, we can't rely on this sort of static experience that we, we, you know, we had early on, on the front end of that longer work life. So how are we going to make it so that it's easier to either do both at the same time to learn and earn at the same time, or to step out briefly, get exactly what we need to get back onto that workforce highway, right? Like thinking about those on and off ramps or those cloverleaf interchanges. How do we, how do we just get exactly what we need instead of having to get yet another degree or yet another certificate, but something that just really meets us where we are. I love that. And you've teed me up beautifully for my next and final question, because I loved how you talked about unbundling education to be modular, but also that this flexible architecture of modularized competencies, which technology enhances, allows providers to create and scale a multitude of stackable credentials or programs for a wide variety of industries. At the same time, learning providers can personalize those pathways that flex with the busy lives of very different consumers of education. Now, that's going to appeal to so many of our listeners. So many people work on those modularized elements. They work on the technology to enable those modularized elements. I'd love if you shared about this because this is one of the core messages in, in the book. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, there are different names for, for this aspirational work. You know, we hear about stackable credentials and micro credentials. Um, and the reason why I call it aspirational is to me, there's this, this concept is still a little bit mythical in nature and in terms of when, when a university say is trying to meet the demands of an employer in the region, say, what happens often is that a lot of things need to be built in this kind of emergent situation and uh, it's resource intensive. It's not necessarily a repeatable process. It is expensive. It is time consuming. And so what we really need to think about as we think about this, you know, this kind of conundrum where you have higher ed on one side saying we shouldn't be teaching skills that maybe are going to be out of date in a few years, but yet you have employers seeking uh, real real pathways for their people in order to, to remain uh, competitive. And you have the people themselves, the workers themselves who are seeking out these, these specific granular skill sets, and they have nowhere to actually gain that new learning. Um, in this kind of gray area that we're in today, we need a way in order to, to stack these things more readily and more nimbly and quickly for, for our learners. And the reason why modularity is so critical is today, even when you look at the technology out there, AI is doing some pretty incredible things in terms of serving as potential skills compasses for all of us, where we can actually start inputting on the computer or on our cell phones, our, our past experiences, uh, whether we were working at a retailer or, you know, at Starbucks, we can, we can put in these details and this AI can actually, the, the platforms can actually say, Hey, did you know that people who, who were baristas in the past could do these skills? And we can start to sort of surface our own skill sets that maybe we didn't even know how to articulate. And then we can also see the pathways that we can port our skills into. Maybe we're 60% of the way there toward being a system network analyst and we have these specific gaps to fill. The challenge, of course, is that next step of filling those gaps is often 
where are the institutions out there that can help me fill those gaps? And right now there's not a great targeted and precise educational pathway that most learners can access and know are legitimate in order to fill those skills gaps. So this is why we really do need to think about modularizing our our learning experiences so that we can really kind of chunk up uh, our educational experiences into the into what fits the lives of our learners, right? Because we all have so much life that gets in the way of our pursuit of ad- advancement. But if we can actually begin to tailor our learning experiences to really fit the lives and the circumstances of our learners, then we are really creating that student-centered or learner-centered uh, educational experience. Michelle, if you had one message that you could send to the education ecosystem in its entirety, what would be that message? I think it would be that we need to understand that our traditional college going population of 18 to 24 year olds is plateauing. If not by the mid 2030s, actually going to really fall off a cliff. We, we know that this enrollment gap is going to occur. And so in anticipation of that, uh, of that real sort of decrease in, in our traditional enrollment, where are we going to look? We have this huge untapped market of workers and working learners who are going to need to access those seamless on and off ramps out of work into learning. And so what are we going to actually build in service of that? That really, I think, needs to be top of mind for all institutions of higher ed, no matter how prestigious they are, no matter how well they're doing today. Uh, this is this again kind of connects to my background, you know, of in the theories of disruptive innovation. It's very alluring our current context, even if we're very successful today. What we have to realize is that that is not necessarily sustainable for the long run, and we have to be anticipating that new population of learners we can be serving better. Uh, Michelle, for I know you're a prolific keynote speaker and you run virtual workshops, et cetera, et cetera. Where can people find out more about your work? Sure. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter and LinkedIn uh, via the handle rwmichelle. For my personal website, it's uh, michelle at riseanddesign.io. And you know, I just actually started some new work as the Vice Chancellor of Strategy and Innovation at National University System. And uh, you can probably check out the, the progression of our work there. I want to thank our amazing guest, author of Long Life Learning, <laughs> Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, Michelle Weiss. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. So now to discuss some of these thoughts and some of the concepts introduced by Michelle, we're joined by researcher with the LearnerVate Center, Richard Hart. Richard, welcome to Inside Learning. Hi, Aidan. Thank you. I'm going to open this totally up to you. What did you think of the interview? How do you think you can apply some of those lessons to your world? She touched on some interesting points and how we can modularize education and stack it in such a way that we can deliver effective learning to people on a continuous basis, that there are no more early milestones of education in terms of K-12 through to college education, that we are now addressing educational needs throughout the lives of uh, people. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm going to build on that and simplify things the way my simple brain works. 
I can, like a Lego brick, go and get the exact piece to build my new career of the future. And I thought that was really interesting from a Learnovate perspective. And I wanted to ask you about that. What are you seeing from the people you work with, the clients you work with, the patrons you work with, et cetera, in Learnovate? What are you seeing that that is applicable to as a Learnovate researcher? In her book and in the interview, she really addresses the challenge of such a setup. So when you think of traditional education, you have uh, very set modules, you have semesters, you have years, and it's all very uh, linear and built on top of each other. And what Michelle is proposing is something that may be resource intensive and not very repeatable, as she said, because you have to adapt to the changing circumstances of industry, changing needs of learners, and the changing uh, you know, landscape of technology that's available. And I think Michelle like, really touched on a number of learner personas that she's targeting. Um, needless to say, she's, she's looking at uh, adults who've lost jobs or their role has become obsolete or redundant, and they have to either adapt their current skills or learn new skills. Um, but also, I thought it was interesting that she's looking at adults who may not have had access to stable education environment or maybe didn't go through the traditional uh, educational pathways and may not have the skills necessary to identify new educational opportunities and the different ways that they're presenting themselves. So for example, in our studies uh, in Learnovate, we've kind of done a few studies on micro-credentials and the different uh, offerings that are out there from uh, companies like Credly and Open Badge who are offering these so-called micro-credentials that learners can accumulate over their career. And these uh, credentials might be anything from, you know, learning about leadership skills all the way up to learning complex data analysis or coding practices. So what we're seeing is the challenge of rolling those out in a regulated and on-demand manner so that learners, when they need to upskill or they need to adapt, they have access to them and they are recognized by their companies and different academic institutes. I wanted to build on something you said there. You mentioned about people whose roles were made obsolete. And this isn't that they're no longer needed. It's actually that just that perhaps they had a very rote, repeatable, task-driven role. And that role has now been replaced by artificial intelligence. And we're going to see this more and more as the world progresses and become increasingly digital. We've already seen it. The pandemic has been an accelerant for this type of change. What are you seeing? How is AI changing how we learn? And then how is it impacting the learners of the future? Michelle, in the interview, I think she made a, a good observation about AI that, you know, there are two kinds of conversations going on around AI the first is how useful it could be and the power of AI to identify, let's say in Michelle's case, she said it could be used to identify skill gaps, but also the apprehension around AI and that AI is, like you said, making roles obsolete or um, it's something that people might be afraid of, that they're going to become redundant due to the automated processes or, or AI. But what we would see in Learnovate, let's say from a service design perspective, is that when we're redesigning a service or we're, we're carrying out a digital transformation, 
AI is a component that you can introduce to your service. It's not the solution. So we can embed AI at certain points in our service design, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily replacing, uh, you know, a human worker or, you know, a human uh, activity. It's that, that we're trying to improve the service and automate certain processes to take the burden of uh, certain human actors within the service. So that's what we try to, you know, really press home to our clients is that when we're redesigning service, we're not just going to suggest AI for everything because it doesn't always fit. And if anything, it's only going to be used as components in the service design. Researcher with the Learnovate Center, Richard Hart. Thanks for joining us on Inside Learning, brought to you by the Learnovate Center in Trinity College, Dublin. See you next time. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.